I'm going to just depart from normal procedure in this talk because I just want to spend two seconds saying how honoured I am to be the Scholar-in-Residence this year at the, uh, the Community Scholarship Program here in Orange County. And a massive thank you to Ari Katz and the whole team that has made us feel very welcome and put that together. I, I have to tell you that um, Southern California is not the most difficult place in the world to which to adjust. But I am, uh, nevertheless, very grateful for the efforts that have been made to make us feel very welcome and comfortable. And uh, I, I, just spent a, <laughs> I just spent a week uh, teaching in New York uh, and uh, flew in Thursday night and after I got, uh, flew in Thursday and then sometime on Thursday evening, uh, my wife shoved the program for the next month in front of me and said, that's what you'll be doing. And uh, after several heart attacks, I uh, have realised that Really, tonight's talk was the ideal choice uh, to give an overall framework of some of the things that over the next month we're going to be filling in the gaps. So those of you who have the chance to attend some of the talks I'll be giving, uh, obviously I wasn't in charge of choosing the talks. Different organisations and have chosen which talk they think is best for them out of a range of possibilities. This talk, this talk is a bit of a ride, so... Uh, settle in, uh, like a ride on an aeroplane, uh, first of all they tell you where you're going, and that is we're going to try and do the whole of Jewish history in one hour. Uh, the second thing they tell you is to switch off any mobile devices, and I'm here to tell you that I do find mobile phones and cell phones very, very distracting, uh, so you have a one blanket warning on that, and uh, any violation uh, will be, uh, I can't be held responsible for um, what will happen. Yeah, but, but I can tell you right now that if I do hear a phone, uh, and with 250 people in this room, you should be aware that if I do hear a phone, I will stop the talk until the phone is off. I've actually had one person once answer a phone in the middle of a talk. <laughs> if, you, if you want to test a unique level of humiliation, just try that. All right. The first thing I want to say about this talk, uh, which I always highlight, and that is that there is no more important subject uh, for the Jewish world today than Jewish history in terms of informing our meaning as a, as a people, as a collective, as a continuum in history. If we don't understand where we're coming from, we have no chance of knowing where we're meant to be going. And we're, like a, 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 we're in a boat and we don't even realise that boat is sitting on an ocean. But we also have to realise that the study of Jewish history is, in fact, a commandment of the Torah. It is a positive precept that you will find in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse 7. Zchor yomot olam. Remember the days of the world. Binu shenot dor vador. Understand the years of every generation. Problem is, we have this ginormous history. I mean, if they came from Mars and had to choose a people, one individual, unique collective that has this phenomenal history that's been at the cornerstone and the centre of everything, it would be us. And our history is recorded. You know, we write things down, we look at them, we remember them, we pass them on. How do we get our head around this massive framework? And what we realise is that if we understand the epochs 
of Jewish history, all the details can fit into place. And in order to do that, we need a form of framework. Now, you can sleep through most of this talk. There are, however, some points where, I mean, just keep your eyes open, <laughs> go to sleep with your eyes open, but there are certain points at which it will be worth being awake. And this is one of them. So let me explain to you what's happening, and then you can go to sleep, and so when I wake you up, you can know roughly what's going on. <laughs> some of the more astute among you may have noticed that there is paper on all the walls. Each wall represents a thousand years. A thousand. We have four. This, this talk works really well at this time of history. I don't know how difficult or easy it would be to do it at any other time in history, but right now it works well. I'm going to use the secular counting. I know that we have our own Hebrew calendar, and the current year is 5774. But I'm going, with your permission, and if it's okay, because most people follow the secular counting, so... I'm going to start over here. Let's, let's call this, I know that this is a bit wonky, but let's call this a corner. Everybody okay with that? Yeah. Just a little bit of conceptual stretching. We'll call this a corner. I'm going to start over here, and I'm going to call this corner... Really, this in black. Uh, this corner is going to be minus... 2000, or what we call 2000 BCE. In Jewish history, we talk about before and after the Common Era. BCE, before the Common Era, and CE, the Common Era. Jews have never been fond of saying Anno Domini and so on. <laughs> so each wall is a thousand years. I'm going to start here. So that's minus 2000, and that means that. Is that causing a lot of disruption, Grendel? Is that all right? We're cool. And this is going over here. Thank you, Mel. He's doing the whole thing so we have a nice continuous flow of history. We don't have any gaps, that's outstanding. Fire hazards notwithstanding. I'm going to call this minus 1,000. That corner is going to be what? Zero. zero. There was, of course, no year zero. People didn't wake up on January 1 and go, yay, it's the year zero. But <laughs> theoretically, that's where it was. That's going to be 1,000 CE. Yep. And we're going to end up here at 2000 CE, approximately where we are now. That means, of course, that during the course of the talk, unless you want to be paying chiropractic bills for the rest of your life, you're going to be swiveling your chairs and not some little namby-pamby British swivel, like a full-bodied American swivel. We're going to take our chair, we're going to turn around, and I will let you, don't do that yet, I will let you know when to do that. Now, We'd better get started because we've already lost minutes and, you know, you can imagine a thousand years every 15 minutes. <laughs> what I'm about to do now, don't try at home. <laughs> Especially if you don't have paper on the walls. I'm, it took years of practice to do this. It's going to take a few seconds, but it looks easy, but it's not simple. I'm going to draw the first millennium of Jewish history. Right, good, done. We've done that, thank you. All right, let's put in some centuries. Obviously, we have to imagine, in fact, 
we don't even have to imagine so much. The, the walls look to me reasonably symmetrical, but uh, this is a thousand years. We're going to call this minus 1500. We've got nice big walls, so we can do nice big centuries. Minus 1600, minus 1700, minus 1800, minus 1900. Bearing in mind, and I don't normally say this right at the beginning, but it's sometimes worth pointing out, um, when I say I don't normally say this, this talk is different every time I give it. Not only is history always changing, but I'm also changing my opinion on history. But the framework stays the same. Everything I'm going to talk about tonight is headlines. Every single point at which you can enter into Jewish history, you will find oceans to talk about, but we're looking at headlines. Jewish history begins with the first Jewish person. And the first Jewish person is Avraham. Avraham is the first Jewish person because he is the one who realizes that it is possible to have a relationship, collective and individual, with the creator of the universe. It's not an easy thing to come to. Avraham, of course, that relationship that Abraham has with God is embodied in what we call a Brit, a covenant. That, this period in Jewish history is the period known as the period of the Avot. The Avot means the patriarchs, the fathers of the Jewish people. Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And of course, it's not just the Avot, it is of course the Imahot as well. It's not just Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, it is Sarah, Rivka, Rachel and Leah. By the way, if this is the whole of Jewish history, remember, 4,000 years. Everything up to here, approx, everything up to here is the Bible. Just to put that in perspective. Now, we have to be very honest, and we have to say, well, what exactly is history, and what is capital H history, and what emerges from theo-historical perspectives and mythologies and so on? There's no question that archaeologists and historians and chroniclers are pushing back the boundaries of what we're finding all the time about the emergence of the Jewish people into history. And no doubt the Bible is reflective of those origins. Back here, we are in what we would call a theo-historical period. We don't actually have any exact, you know, there's no rock that says, I, Abraham, hi, I was here. But the more we push back, we have not yet found anything inconsistent with the biblical narrative, and we certainly came from nowhere. By the time we get to here, and I'll deal with that in just a moment, we are in what we would call a proto-historical period. There is the evidence surrounding our existence, and by the time, I will show you exactly by the time where we get to where we are a definitive capital H historical entity in the world. But it's worth being aware, because people sometimes get confused at what phase we emerge into this concept of objective history. But this is the charter of the Jewish people. These are their origins. This covenantal relationship made effectively with a family 
and the creator of the world. Jacob, whose alternative name is Israel. Jacob has 12 sons and a daughter. The most famous of those sons, of course, is Joseph. Now, most of you, I'm imagining, are fairly familiar with the Bible, so I'm going to do the biblical period very quickly. Joseph takes the family down into Egypt for the, excuse me, for the first, I have to remember that I'm mic'd, for the first of a recurring phenomenon in Jewish history that we call Galut. Galut means exile. What is exile in Hebrew? Galut. And I do that in red. It's amazing because people have such... Sorry? sorry? Questions already? There are details, there's no doubt. But Joseph, Joseph is the one who brought the, effectively brought the family down. I mean, now, 1400, 1300, 1200, 1100. Eventually, this galut in exile turns into a slavement. Uh, for the first and only time, we are actually enslaved as a minority class within a wider population. And then, eventually, we are delivered from Egypt. We are brought out of Egypt. There's the splitting of the Red Sea. By, <laughs> by God. Very good. Very good. Most people say Moses, but it is, in fact, God. And then we brought before Mount Sinai, kaboom, still getting a little bit of feedback, but I'm assuming if you're happy, I'm happy. And at Sinai, the Brit, the covenantal relationship made with the Avot is reaffirmed now with an entire nation. The 12 sons of Israel have now become the children of Israel. They have become an Am. They have become a nation. The 12 tribes, they're standing before Sinai. And at Sinai is revealed an entire ethical, spiritual, moral, social program for building an ideal society. Now, at Sinai, God said many things. Many things. But they can all be boiled down to one essential idea contained in two words in English. Be nice. <laughs> be nice. Don't oppress one another. Don't exploit one another. Don't let the gap between rich and poor to grow too great. Look after the needy, the underprivileged, the widows, the orphans in your society. Let people have equal facilities of justice before the law. If you're going to build this society, says God, I can handle many things, says God. I've got a little problem with idol worship, but I can handle many things, but I will not tolerate social injustice. If you're going to build a society, it must be founded on principles of social justice. That is the essential message I'm giving you. Fine, great. Now, if you're going to build this society, we need somewhere to do it. And in fact, we have somewhere to do it. Because we have a land 
that was promised to the Avot, and that of course means that the last quarter of this millennium is really the story of moving into the land of Israel. There's the land of Israel, and we are moving in, gradually settling it according to our tribal allotments. This period in Jewish history is known as Kibush. The meaning of the word Kibush means conquering the Kibush Haaretz, the conquering of the land, otherwise also known as the Hitnachalut, depending who you talk to politically. But this, in this period, which is a fascinating period in world history, because sometimes we need to realize that the history of the Jewish people is embedded in world history. What's happening in the world at this time? Well, the really interesting thing that's happening in the world at this time is actually happening next door to us. And you all know this from high school, and when I say what it is, you're going to go, oh, yes. And that is, of course, it is the end of the Bronze Age and the beginning of the Iron Age. Just next door to us, the Hittites have worked out how to crank up an oven to 800 degrees Celsius. They can smelt iron. That's a whole new technological shift. They have that technology. We don't. But over the course of a couple of hundred years, we managed to conquer the land and settle it. Our main enemy at that time is a people known as the Plishtim, the Philistines, whose cultural and religious center was in Gaza. Many people try to look for a parallel to our own age. In earlier parts of Jewish history, this would be probably the most similar. Nevertheless, equally important about this period is that there's no central administration. We have a, are a collective of tribes. If there's a crisis, someone gets up, some hero deals with the crisis and then goes back to retire on the farm. There is no central administration, there's no central leadership. By the end of this period, however, towards the end of this period, we go to the great spiritual leader of the age, the prophet Samuel, and we say to him, we would like a king. And Samuel says, you don't want a king. <laughs> you, you, totally. You, Am Yisrael, are a unique nation on earth who are afforded the opportunity to have a direct relationship with your Father in heaven. What do you need a king for? Do you realize kings are going to start wars you don't want? They're going to build projects that you don't want. They're going to take your sons and put them in his army. He's going to take your daughter and marry them off to his friends. He's going to tax you. Yeah, we know all that, but kings are cool. Can we have one? God says to the prophet, if they want a king... I will give them the king that they deserve. So we get this tall, hunky guy from the tribe of Benjamin called Saul. He doesn't work out so well. And then we get the big king, David. And David goes, and he smashes all the enemies of Israel. And in the course of it, he turns this small country into a regional superpower. And he also captures the Jebusite stronghold of Jerusalem and turns it into the eternal capital of the Jewish people. And that happens in 1000 BC. Once that is established, King David's son, Shlomo, King Solomon, builds in Jerusalem a temple, the house of God, an eternal structure dedicated to God, 
in Jerusalem. Everything's gone according to plan. We have the covenant with the Avot. We have the Galut, exile. We come out. We get the big revelation, the Torah. We go into the land. We conquer it. We get the big king. And then the big king's son builds the big house. Everything's gone according to plan. We have entered a type of proto-messianic period. But, as always, there are problems. I'm now going to draw the second millennium. And while I do that, while I do that, you're going to swivel your chair so you're facing this way. Now, trust me when I say this. I don't mean to sound like a kindergarten teacher. Trust me when I say this. If you do not talk, it will be a lot quicker. <laughs> I'm, and to ensure that, I will keep talking. If you... Now, oh, uh, thank you, Atara. If you just leave it there, I'll get to it in a moment. Right, so here we have the second millennium. And we're going to call this minus 500, minus 400, minus 300, minus 200, minus 100. Now, <coughs> this is one of those... This is one of those wake-up moments. Those of you who are at different parts of the room and can't quite see the paper clearly, are welcome, don't panic. You're welcome to browse the paper when I finish on any section that you want to see. But this is a very, very important point that happens here that has tremendous impact on subsequent Jewish history. Because after the death of King Solomon, this united kingdom of 12 tribes thank you, Mel, is, becomes split. There's the land of Israel. It becomes split into a northern kingdom containing ten of the tribes called the kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of just the tribes of Judah and Benjamin with Jerusalem as its capital called the kingdom of Judah. For the next 200 years or so, these two kingdoms are working in parallel. Sometimes at war with each other, sometimes at peace, sometimes ignoring each other. The most significant aspect of this entire period is the constant and ongoing degradation of social justice. Administrations become deeply corrupt. The People, the populations are oppressed. People are exploited. The gap between rich and poor becomes too great to overcome. And that is why it is in this period that we see the rise of a new, really highly original institution in Am Yisrael, the concept of the Navi, the prophet, who was screaming the words of God really to anyone who would listen, but particularly to the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. The most famous of those prophets, although he doesn't have his own book in the Bible, the most famous of those prophets is, of course, Elijah. And we could put Elijah here. But the other famous prophets you've all heard of, Hosea, Isaiah, all of them are in this particular period here. Now, wake-up moment. We have a lot of history. <laughs> 
and really to understand the framework of what I'm doing tonight is to realize that from about here onwards, maybe before, but let's start with here, the Jewish people seem to undergo some sort of phasic transition every 500 years. This is not invented by me. These emerge naturally from Jewish history. Every, each 500-year epoch has its own unique spiritual project. And therefore, all we really need to do is understand from that, from King David onwards, six 500-year epochs. This 500-year epoch here, from the building of the temple to roundabout here, is known in Jewish history as the period of bayit. What's the meaning of the word bayit? House. What's house in Hebrew? Bayit. Very good. Rishon. The first. The first house. This period is the first temple. Eventually, the situation got so bad that by the time we get to here, right, so here's the split kingdom. There's the kingdom of Israel. There's the kingdom of Judah. The new power in the region, the unstoppable, neo, ever-expanding neo-Assyrian empire come and they ethnically cleanse the entire northern kingdom and take the ten tribes away into the dustbin of history. Or so we think. For the next 120 years or so, the southern kingdom of Judah struggles on. A couple of good kings, mostly bad ones. And then eventually, in minus 586, the temple, the new power on the block, the big bad Babylonians come and destroy the temple. This set about a traumatic cataclysm in the psyche of Am Yisrael, from which in many ways we've never recovered. This building was meant to be an eternal building. However bad things got, it was dedicated by King Solomon to God. It was meant to last forever. Its destruction was unbelievably traumatic. But as we know, famously prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah on the eve of the destruction, that this... Galut, what do we call the meaning of, what's the meaning of the word Galut? Exile. This is Galut Babel. This is the Babylonian exile. That this exile would last for 70 years. And indeed, after exactly 70 years, the Babylonians at the height of their power were conquered by the new power in the region, the Persians. And the great Persian leader Cyrus said, not only am I going to allow the Jews to return and rebuild the temple, I'm actually going to sponsor that project. So here we come back and we rebuild the temple, thus inaugurating the next 500-year phase, which is known creatively and originally as Bayit Sheni, the second temple period. So it is in fact... Here is where you have a temple in Jewish history. A first temple, a second temple. This is the temple wall. 
Uh, that was a little joke, but don't worry about that. Um, one more thing I just wanted to say about this, but that'll... Okay, we'll come back later to that. Now, everybody following me so far? Good. That more or less marks the end of the biblical period. The Bible ends with the return to Zion of the remnants that were exiled. I remember now, because I promised I would mention this before. This situation of the, our encounter with the Neo-Assyrian Empire and the ethnic cleansing of the Northern Kingdom is already in objective history. We have several chronicles of that. If you go to the British Museum today, you will see the evidence of the earlier kings of the Northern Kingdom of Israel paying homage to the Neo-Assyrian kings. We are now definitively in history. Some people might think that's late, but in fact that is already 2,700 years ago. And we didn't catch out of nowhere. But here we are in the Second Temple period. The Second Temple period is very, very complex. And scholars have been crawling all over it for decades, centuries. I'm going to give it to you in about three minutes. Because we have to, because we obviously have a lot of things to talk about tonight. There are three or four sub-phases of the Second Temple, depending on who's in charge. The first period goes up to about here. And we call that the Persian period, because the Persians are in charge. We are pretty much a colonial outpost of the Persian Empire. As long as we pay our taxes and we're good boys and girls and we don't rebel, they're okay to leave us alone. And we have a lot to do. We have to reconstruct an entire society and economy and spiritual structure. It's known as a quiet period in Jewish history, but it's not really quiet if you understand what we actually managed to achieve in terms of solidifying the uh, great spiritual edifice that is the Bible, that is reconstructing the temple and all of its different appurtenances to become the Jewish people that we know. Remember that when I say the Jewish people, it is, and that's why I say this is so impactful, it is really from here onwards that we are no longer the greater Israel because we don't have ten of the tribes. We are in fact the kingdom of Judah, Judah, Judaism, the Jewish people, and that is why we refer to the Jewish people, even though, strictly speaking, it is the people of Israel in the larger sense. And we'll come back and talk about that in a moment. The Persians are in charge. That's the Persian period. And then in around about minus 330, everything changes. Everything changes. Because... One morning, one morning, probably a Tuesday, <laughs> a young man wakes up and decides it would be a good idea to conquer the world. His father had actually already tried to conquer the world and sort of failed, but young Alexander says that whereas my father, Philip of Macedon, didn't quite succeed, I will. And over the course of the next 10 years or so, in a stunning series of victories, he effectively conquers the whole of the known world from Greece right through to India, including us. What's important to realize is that our encounter with Alexander was not merely a military or conquest encounter. 
Alexander brought with him a new ideology into the world. Who was Alexander's direct teacher? Not he went to this guy's school and he saw his picture on the wall. This, his actual teacher appointed to him by his father was Aristotle. Aristotle. Aristotle's teacher was Plato. Plato's teacher was Socrates. So our encounter with Alexander was an encounter with the very heart of this new ideology called Hellenism. Is everybody familiar with Hellenism in Southern California? Do I need to spend half a minute explaining Hellenism? <laughs> Not here, right? I'd, sorry? Yes, half a minute? Okay, because it's a very cute way of explaining it. I'll give you half a minute. <coughs> a Hellenic dude, when he wakes up in the morning, a Hellenic dude is going to go, that's fantastic. Look at those rippling abs, those mouths. Look at this body. There's nothing I can't do with this body, especially in the nude. I can run, I can swim, I can... Whoa! Who's thinking those thoughts? What's this amazing, precise, rational instrument in my head called my mind? Whoa! My mind, my body together. There is nothing I can't achieve in this thing called man. And Hellenic thought focuses on external qualities, beauty, harmony, truth. The Jewish person wakes up in the morning. <laughs> They're not looking at anything, it's pathetic. They say, Moderni. The Jewish people have never gone after what they can see, but after what they have heard. Shema Yisrael. And what is it that the Jewish people are told to listen to? That inner voice inside them, that every individual that tells them the difference between good and evil, between right and wrong, concepts the Greeks didn't really have. As someone has once said, they gave us art, we gave them guilt. But <laughs> ultimately, that encounter between the Judaic and the Hellenic some scholars will tell you that the whole of subsequent Western history is but a footnote to that encounter. But as so often happens to young men who try to conquer the world, Alexander died. And he died at a fairly young age. And of course, and this is important to understand, what's that? That, that is the Mediterranean. If you don't believe me, go there. For those of you who are confused, that's the water, right? So for our purposes here, we'll come back to this drawing, but for our purposes here, there's the land of Israel. So his generals, Alexander's generals, the famous Diadochi, they divide up all of his conquests. And for our purposes, the ones that are really important to understand is General Seleucus, who said, oh, I'll take that, thank you very much, the Seleucid Empire. And another one called Ptolemy, spelt per Ptolemy, says, oh, I'll take this, Egypt, thank you very much, and create a Hellenic dynasty there. So for the next hundred years, we are like a basketball between these two dynasties who are, in effect, trying to out-Hellene each other. It is very trendy to be Hellenic. Many, many great cultural artifacts, such as the first translations of the Bible, emerge from this period. But ultimately, we end, round about here, we end up in the hands of the 
Seleucid Empire, rulers like Antiochus III and then his son Antiochus IV, who comes up and says, oh, I don't have a problem with Jews per se. Some of my best friends are Jews, but I have a problem with Jewish spirituality. And in a series of decrees, attempts to eradicate Judaism to the point where we're actually offering pigs in the Temple Mount. And of course, that precipitates the great Hasmonean revolt and the story of Hanukkah. That is the end of the second phase of the Second Temple, which we will call the Greek period. If Hanukkah is there, by the way, if, if there is a historical setting to Purim, it's round about here, so I'll draw a little hamantash in there. <laughs> now, it's important to remember that Hanukkah is really, as much as we all like Hanukkah, it's really just the warm, fluffy PR exercise of the Hasmoneans. Over the course of the next hundred years, they were, for the most part, a disaster. And several major, major what we, it's easy for us with hindsight to call them errors, but they were pretty bad errors. And eventually the situation got so bad that a hundred years later we have a civil war conducted by two brothers descendants of the Hasmonean dynasty over Harabite itself, the situation is so bad that here we actually invite the new power in the region, the big bad Romans, to enter in. And there you go, minus 63, in marches Pompey into Jerusalem, the Romans are in town, and it is the beginning of the end as far as the second temple is concerned, but I'll get to that in a moment. During the latter phases of the Second Temple period, two distinct pictures are emerging of what Judaism actually is and what it should look like. One picture says, oh, it's all about the temple and it's all about the priests and it's all about the sacrifices. It's about purity and impurity. It is about the priestly cult. I mean, it's for everyone, but really it's focused on the temple. They were the famous Sadducees that stuck him. We sometimes forget today that this was an equally competing picture of what Judaism actually is, some sort of Middle Eastern Hinduism. The other picture said, in fact, the written Torah, the code that we received at Sinai, is a document that is to be interpreted dynamically using the principle of the dignity of the human being as its cornerstone. And all of the hundreds and thousands of dynamic common law interpretations of the Torah effectively constitute what is known as the oral Torah conveyed from teacher to pupil, from father to son, from mother to daughter, over generations. The scribes and sages that were committed to that project, round about here, took on the famous brand name of the rabbis. The big turning point for the rabbis was when they started to establish big schools of thought, and the most famous of the early schools of rabbinic thought, of course, is the house of Hillel. But Hillel is a contemporary of a very, very significant figure that emerges towards the end of the Second Temple period because one of the great mistakes that the Hasmoneans had made was to convert, forcibly convert several neighboring tribes, one of which was the Idumeans. That was going to have very bad karma. And in fact, by the time you get to here, a descendant of that particular project make, gets himself appointed by the Romans as king. 
And of course, that is Herod. It's important to realize that Herod is pretty much an exact contemporary of Hillel. Now, Herod was probably the biggest psycho bastard ever to rule over the Jewish people. But anyone who's been to Israel will know he was an amazing builder. That's why your guide in Israel will say, oh, Herod built that. Oh, and Herod built that. Oh, that was built by Herod. Oh, Herod built. You know, he built obviously Masada and Caesarea and at least two places called Herodium. But his big project was a brick by brick reconstruction of the temple itself. Nevertheless, by the time we get to the year zero, Herod is dead and his sons are fighting for control of Eudea, the Roman province of Eudea, Judea, Israel. And the Romans themselves have decided that they're going to do something quite different. While you are swiveling to face this way, I'm going to draw the third millennium. And it's going to start getting interesting, so I'll keep talking. The Romans decided... Right, I'm going to call this... I'm going to call this 500. Yeah, we'll call this 500. So, 400, 300, 200, 100. Now, if we were, if we were to meet every night for a couple of hours, every night, and talk about Jewish history for, say, six months, it wouldn't be enough to cover just this section here. This section here is its own sub-subject in Jewish history called first century Palestine. It is packed with incidents that we're still coming to terms with. But the basic, basic summary is this. The Romans decided that they were not going to have any more... Thanks. They were not going to have any more Jewish kings. They were going to rule Eudea directly. And so for the most part... There were a series of governors. It's very complex, but the basic story is that each governor was a bigger psycho than the one before. <laughs> Arbitrary decrees and so on. And by the time we get to the year 66, we can't handle it anymore and we rebel and we revolt big time. The emperor at the time, of course, is Nero. Nero. Very good. Nero. And Nero sends his top soldier, Vespasian, with 60,000 troops. And they start in the north of Israel. And they move down. Resistance is futile. And eventually, in around 68, they get to Jerusalem and they siege it. Obviously, pandemonium breaks out. The spiritual leader of the age inside Jerusalem, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, a student of the house of Hillel, gets himself smuggled out and has a very fateful encounter with Vespasian and a very, very fateful discussion. I know, says Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai to Vespasian, that you're going to destroy this temple. If you don't, somebody else will. The Shekhinah, the divine presence, left the building some time ago. However, Judaism does not belong in a building. 
we are about to go on a very, very long exile. And the only thing that is only one thing that's going to ensure our survival, apart from the protection of my God and the memory of this place, there is only one thing that will ever ensure Jewish survival. And that is Jewish education. Give me the town of Yavne, this coastal town, and I can rebuild the spiritual and religious infrastructure of the nation, and I can teach and I can raise teachers that can transmit what it is that the people of Israel are actually doing in the world. Vespasian is very impressed. He goes back, he gives him Yavne, he goes back to Rome to become emperor and his son Titus in the year 70, there's no smoke because the sacrifices had stopped, Titus destroys the temple. Once again, setting about another cataclysmic trauma in the psyche of Am Yisrael and commencing this enormous galut. Galut means exile. Now, if the Romans ruled over you in the ancient world and you rebelled, they had a very unique way of doing things. If they ruled over you and you rebelled, they would come and kill you. But killing you was only the warning. If you rebelled again, they would come and completely crush you and wipe you from history. We rebelled three times. And we are still here. And the Romans apparently are not. That is a testament to the power of that discussion, that vision of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai and the construction of Yavna. The second revolt happens here under Trajan, but it is 132 to 135 is the big daddy revolt of them all. In the 120s, of course, Hadrian had come to the throne and Hadrian came up with this original idea. I don't have a problem with Jews per se, some of my best friends are Jews. I have a problem with Jewish spirituality. And in a series of decrees, no Brit Milah, pain of death. No public observance of Shabbat, pain of death. But it was the third decree, no public teaching of Torah, that caused the spiritual leader of the age, Rabbi Akiva, to back the rebellion of the freedom fighter, Bar Kokhba. And you know, Bar Kokhba starts having some limited success. They capture Jerusalem, have a create a shtickle state there, you know, printing some coins, whatever. Hadrian goes ballistic, literally, and brings a Gusquillion soldiers from all over the empire. And of course, in 135 at Beitar, completely crushes the rebellion of Bar Kokhba, raises Jerusalem to the ground, and changes the very name of the country from Iudea and names it after our traditional enemies from the Bible and calls it Palestina. We should always remember that the name Palestine actually was applied by Hadrian to us for no other reason than to piss us off. However, that is the end of Jewish autonomous sovereignty in the land of Israel.
until here. Look at the scale of it and realize how amazing it is to be living in a generation where we have autonomous sovereignty in the land of Israel. For most of this massive span of Jewish history, we don't. However, despite all these tragedies, it's actually not what this 500-year period is all about. This 500-year period in Jewish history is known as the Talmudic. As so often happens to emperors, Hadrian died. And after Hadrian died, life again began to flourish in the land of Israel, and Yavna started to produce great products, so that by the time we get to the year 200, by the time we get to here, we publish and produce one of the, our greatest ever contributions to world spiritual and legal culture, which is the Mishnah. It's always incredible to realize that when 90% of the world is still eating and worshipping cockroaches, we produce the Mishnah, which is thousands of tiny paragraphs of the recorded traditions of the dynamically interpreted oral Torah. Now, the Talmudic is really divided into those two subsections. This is the Tanaitic, the Tanaim are those who produce the Mishnah, and the Mishnah for the next 300 years is discussed and analyzed and taken apart, and its underlying principles are sought out and they're applied, and that huge discussion is called the Gemara. And we know the equation, Mishnah plus Gemara equals Talmud. And of course, being the Jewish people, we have two Talmuds. <laughs> we have, it's the same Mishnah, but the discussion on the Mishnah happened in the land of Israel, and as well in the dynamic new center of Jewish life that was happening in Babylonia. Babylonia is the same place as Babylon, different brand name, today it is Iraq. We have a dynamic new center of the Jewish world happening there. The Jerusalem Talmud, what they call the Jerusalem Talmud, the Talmud of the land of Israel, is really edited, finished, round right about here, because for reasons I'll explain in a second, life becomes difficult for Jews in the land of Israel after here, and the Babylonian Talmud is completed round about 500. But as I said earlier, it's impossible to understand Jewish history without seeing it embedded in world history to an extent, so allow me for a minute just to contextualize that. Back here, back there, back there, in a time and place soaked with messianic tension, a young boy wakes up one morning probably a Friday, and says, oh, you know, I'm a bit special, maybe I'm a bit this, and his friends say, yes, you're a bit special, maybe you're like this, whatever. As so often happens to young Jewish men who think they might be the Messiah and who have encounters with the Romans, he died. And it's important for us to realize that for the first couple of centuries of its history, the Christian church was a persecuted religion, and we were doing a lot of the persecuting, thank you very much. The big turning point for Christianity is here, because under the Emperor Constantine, in around 313, Constantine fights a war in the name of, 
of the, of the new religion of Christianity and wins that war. So Christianity becomes a tolerated religion within the Roman Empire. And then about 20 years later, when Carl Constantine's carking it on his deathbed, he converts. And what happens if the emperor converts to a religion? It becomes the religion of the empire. So from around about the middle of the 4th century, Rome is officially Christian. And that is not good news for the Jews. Second thing is that during the 4th and 5th centuries, of course, Rome became split into an East and West. The Eastern Roman Empire went on to take on the fancy brand name of Byzantium, and by the time you get to the end of the 400s, the Western Roman Empire is overrun by all those barbaric tribes, the Goths, the Visigoths, the Vandals, and so on, and plunges into the Dark Ages, no one can read, etc. Thus, by the time we get to here, 600, 700, 800, 900, 1,000. By the time we get to here, there are really... That's... what's that? Mediterranean. Mediterranean. I mean, like, watch, watch, right? Spain, Italy, Greece, Turkey, Egypt, North Africa, land of Israel, here's Babylonia. There are really three domains, one of, which is the, one of which is the Western Roman Empire, Dark Ages. Over the course of a few centuries, these pagan tribes are gradually converting to Christianity. You have the Byzantine Empire here, very from, very religious, tough Christian empire. And here, you have the whole new, really newly constituted, really Sassanid Parthian Empire with its own dynastic upheavals and religious revolutions. That's the picture here. None of whom can see the ginormous historical tsunami that is just around the corner. Because in 570 is born Muhammad. And at around the age of 40, in around 610, Muhammad is wandering around those caves outside Mecca, you know the ones, and he has this revelation from the angel, Archangel Gabriel, who dictates to him to the Quran, and in a way in which scholars still struggle to understand within the course of less than half a century, this is Islam. I would love to do this in green, that's why we don't have a green, but we'll do it in blue. This is over the course of this hundred years here. The Byzantine Empire shrunk. Persian Empire gone. And our center of the Jewish world, which is in Babylonia, suddenly finds itself at the center, at the epicenter of the new Islamic Empire. The big turning point, I just want to make sure we stay, we stay here, so we're going to call this 700. The big turning point for Islam, as far as Jewish history is concerned, is the year 711. What happened in 711? In 711, Islam conquered Spain. And I don't need to remind you that Spain is a European country. And that sent shockwaves through the world then as it would today. However, Spain was conquered by 
chilled Muslims called the Moors. And they said, if they liked, we like Jews. And if Jews want to make it here to Spain to help us build this amazing civilization we want to build here, they can pursue whatever they want. And so that's not quite yet the golden age of Spain, but it lays the foundations of what's going to become the golden age of Spain. This 500 years, but the center of the Jewish world is definitively, for most of this period, still in Babylonia. This period in Jewish history is called the Garnic. This 500 year period, exactly 500 years. Why do we, why do we call it the Garnic? Who were the Geonim? Now, in Babylonia, we had two enormous academies, which were like the Oxford and Cambridge, the Harvard and Yale, Sura and Pumbadita. The chief heads of these academies, these super rabbis, were not only responsible for Babylonian Jewry, but through their thousands of responsa, were guiding the Jewish world through letters all over, wherever Jews found themselves, they would be referring back to Babylonia. If you're sitting in somewhere in some loch in Germany in the 8th century and you put a fleshic spoon in a milkic cup and you don't know what to do, you have to write back to Babylonia, wait three months for the answer. <laughs> if the Talmud was concerned with what Jewish life should look like, the Ga'anic was concerned with what it does look like. Many of the central institutions that we take for granted today in Jewish communal life, really, the whole rise of the concept of the Jewish community, as we understand it today, comes from the Ga'anic period. All its central, organ you know, the centralized Kashrut, Hevra Kadisha, the calendar, the Sidur, Chalant, all of these, <laughs> not a joke, all of these institutions emerge from the Gaonic period. If you want to look at the career of someone whose life really embodied that, then it would be one of the later Gaonim, the most famous of them, who would, of course, be Saadja Gaon. 708, yeah. And uh, I mean, the Gaonic period is one of the least sort of understood and most crucially important periods in Jewish history. However, over the course of the last couple of hundred years of this period, not as a result of any one cataclysmic event, but like a slow, inexorable leak, Jews are leaving Babylonia. And this is one of those wake-up moments to realize what's going on. And they're leaving Babylonia in two fundamental directions towards, ultimately, was really Spain and Western Europe, where conditions for Jews were much better. They're either going that way, in which case they're going through mostly Christian countries, or they're going this way. And when I say, you know, this over the course of two or three hundred years, and they're setting up communities along the way, or they're going along North Africa to Spain that way. The first Jews to arrive in Northwest Europe, in Germany, met a local people who saw their own spiritual roots as coming from Scandinavia, which they called Skansia. And the Jews went, oh, Skansia. That sounds a lot like one of the great destinations prophesied in the Bible. The Bible prophesies a very long exile for the Jewish people with several major destinations. That sounds a lot like the lands of Ashkenaz. And the Jews that got to Spain said, well, if that's Ashkenaz, then this must be the other 
great exilic destination mentioned in the book of Ovadia, the lands of Sfarad. So the cultural rather than ethnic distinction between Ashkenazic and Sephardic Jewry also arises from the late Gaonic and the great shifts that happened out of Babylonia. By the time we get to the year 1000, the last of the great Gaonim, Rav Hai Gaon, wakes up one morning, probably a Wednesday, looks around him and says, oh, I'm Gaon over no one. There's no one left in Babylonia. And indeed, after Rav Hai Gaon, Babylonia is pretty much a backwater for the next seven, eight hundred years. But as the sun sets on Babylonia, it rises in Europe. The first great super rabbi to arrive in Germany, a super rabbi meaning at the level of the Gaonim, they didn't have to write back to Babylonia, is of course Rabbeinu Gershom. And Rabbeinu Gershom, the granddaddy of Ashkenazic Jewry, is an exact contemporary of Rav Hai Gaon, the last Gaon of Babylonia. Rabbeinu Gershom, of course, is famous for various decrees that became binding on Ashkenazic Jewry. The most famous of his decree, of course, is that Jewish men, unfortunately, cannot be married to more than one woman at a time. Yeah, well, you remember the Austin Powers movie, right? Where he goes like, you know, a million dollars, right? So when they were sitting there and he said, we're going to enact this for a thousand years. Well, guess what? It expired in 2002. <laughs> My wife has told me I can have as many wives as I want, but she won't be one of them. But it's, it's true, it was binding on Ashkenazic Jewry. That's why in 1948, when they set up the State of Israel, guys were arriving from places like Yemen with three or four wives because they had never been under the edict of Rabbeinu Gershom about polygamy. Also famously, Rabbeinu Gershom decreed that it was forbidden for Jews to read mail addressed to anyone, uh, forbidden to open mail addressed to anyone else, and that's why Jews were trusted to carry mail right throughout the Middle Ages under the, what they call Chadrag, the Cherem of Rabbeinu Gershom. But very, very fascinating period. But really, by the time we get to here, from here, the center of the Jewish world, although the Jewish world doesn't have any one particular center, the most dynamic and thriving place for Jews is Spain. And that is really where we commence this fourth millennium. It's about to get interesting. We have a lot to cover, so I'm going to ask you to quickly swivel this way. And can you tell me the time? Do you know the time? 8.32. All right. It's 8.32. Sorry? No? I've just realized that it is, in fact, 8.32. So the exercise of doing the whole of Jewish history in one hour has yet again failed. But that's only because you're such a good audience and I'm, uh, you know, probably uh, enjoying it. So with your indulgence, I will get through this last wall as quickly as I can. I know some of you have got babysitters for your parents and so on, but I will get through this quickly. I do understand, I apologise for having gone over. Is it okay if I go on for another five, ten minutes? This is a very, very important wall. <laughs> All right. And one of the reasons this wall is complex is because, as I said, when we start this millennium, we don't really have... Oh, look, he's talking and he's doing it. Oh, man. 
We don't really have... That's a very straight line. That's awesome. Uh, we don't really have 1,400, 1,300, 1,200, 1,100. We don't have a center. There's no definitive center of the Jewish world. That is really defines the project of this 500-year period, which is known in Jewish history, not by me, this is how it's known. It's known in Jewish history as the period of the Rishonim. The Rishonim mean the first ones. Obviously, they are the Rishonim in relation to this last 500 years, which we call the period of the Acharonim, of the latter ones. The Rishonim are concerned with what it is to be a Jewish person in the world and how can we guide a person when there's no center and we've been in exile already for a thousand years? It is a really a, a period focused on the concept of codes in every sense of that word. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Rabbeinu Gershom established the first academy, spiritual academy of learning in Germany at Mainz. He died in the very same year that the greatest product of that academy was born who learnt at the feet of Rabbeinu Gershom's direct disciples, and that person, of course, was Rashi. His name wasn't Rashi. He didn't run around going, Hi, I'm Rashi. Rav Shlomo Yitzchaki, the greatest commentator on the Talmud and the Bible. Commentary was a new educational tool now coming to the fore in Jewish life. But really, Rashi's living in France, but the real deal is actually happening in Spain. Now, <laughs> you have to know that we really need three or four separate timelines to cover this effectively, and I've got to do it quickly. Who's that? <laughs> Th that is Urban II, job description, Pope, and he's announcing the First Crusade. The Crusades are an awful, awful, miserable, futile project that lasts for the next 200 years, millions died and everything. You know, this project to try and recapture the Holy Land for Western Christendom away from Islam. Obviously, the first crusaders here in Germany said, you know, we don't have to go all the way to the Holy Land to kill non-Christians. We've got them right here. So the first thing they do is wipe out, massacre all of the Jewish communities along the Rhineland. And people, and I, I make this point, and people say, oh, you know, the Holocaust, some people think the Holocaust is an isolated event, and they do not realize that the project of the genocide of the Jews of Germany happens here, and here, and here, and here, and here, and here. And so we say to ourselves, you know, so why do Jews keep going back to Germany? And I say, look at your own generation. What is the fastest, half a century after the Holocaust, what is the fastest growing Jewish community in the world outside of Israel? Germany. And yet the lesson of this entire wall should be that Jews should not be living in Germany. I make that point emphatically because unless someone makes it, it's not going to get made. And I make that point in Germany too, and they love it. They love the guilt and they bring it on. <laughs> However, in Spain, what we're seeing, on the other side of the Pyrenees, what we're seeing is a new type of Jewish contribution. People who are not only great 
within the Jewish community in its spiritual and social projects, but within the civic community at large. Guys like Shmuel Hanagid, Chastai Ibn Shaprut, these become leaders and warriors within Spanish society, but the greatest product of the Golden Age of Spain never gets to enjoy the Golden Age of Spain for very long because 1148, this zealot, intolerant, Talibanic Islamic movement called the Al-Muhads sweep through Spain and put an end to the good times. And 1148 is the year of the bar mitzvah of the Rambam, of Maimonides. Now, I know, so what year was the Rambam born in? 1135. Now, I know this is a Jewish audience, so you know, the, you're no stranger to the Rambam, Rabbi Moshe bin Maimon, you're no stranger to Maimonides, and you're going to say, oh, oh yeah, I've heard of Maimonides, yeah, Maimonides. I just need to spend half a minute because I just want to ram this in context about Maimonides because Maimonides is not just another dude. <laughs> imagine, imagine that someone becomes the greatest rabbi in the world. Right? Well, that's nice. And that's nachas for the family. And in fact, <laughs> but at the end of the day, someone's got to be the biggest rabbi in the world. But the Rambam wasn't just the biggest rabbi in the world, he was the biggest rabbi for many generations on either side, and his Mishneh Torah is an enormous encyclopedic compendium of the entire oral Torah tradition up to his day. It is a huge feat. But that's Nachas. Imagine the same person is also... Imagine that today, right? The biggest rabbi in the world is also the greatest physician in the world. I mean, Saladin and Richard I are fighting over who's going to have the Rambam as their personal doctor. Same per Now, that's some serious nachas, right? Same guy, biggest rabbi, biggest doctor. Now, imagine the same person is also regarded as the greatest philosopher of his age. The Christian church is not exactly in the habit of handing out medals to Jewish philosophers living in Muslim countries, but they have time for the Rambam. And his entire project of welding the whole philosophy of Aristotle onto the Torah. Same person, greatest rabbi, greatest doctor, greatest philosopher. That's getting some serious nachas. But it's the reason why the figure of the Rambam towers over this whole period. And we realize when you look closer at the historical detail that the Rambam did most of that spending his life on the run. Phenomenal. All right. The story of this period here is one of incalculable misery. It is amazing that we survived the Middle Ages at all, especially in Europe. Massacres. Summary expulsions, summary taxations, forced disputations, forced conversions, more massacres, more pogroms. One awful, horrible thing after another. And yet, during this time, we still managed to produce phenomenal spiritual output that contributes to the destiny of the Jewish people in the world to reveal the oneness of God in the world. <sighs> Obviously, I wish we had slightly more time to spend on this now, but we're running out. I want to get to here because I'm going to finish. I'm not going to finish here, but I'm going to tell you a little story here. And that will make the next 500 years easier. But before we get to that story, we have to realize that 1492, 
obviously, in 1469. In 1469, we saw the shidduch of the century, Ferdinand and Isabella, and they go about deciding that they're going to build this new idealistic Spain, a new Christian Spain, and they bring in their friend Thomas de Torquemada to go to work on the Jews and the, and the new Christians, and they revive the Inquisition. And eventually, in 1491, Thomas turns around and says, listen, so long as you have Jews in Spain, you're going to have Jews in Spain. Right? There's only one thing you've got to do. And... the entire 700-year community of Spain. I and mean, when people think, you know, <laughs> about the permanence of Jewish communities in the Galut, they should realize that if you'd asked someone in the 12th or 13th centuries, do you think the Spanish Jewish community will ever come to... Nah. Not just the same year, not just the same month, not just the same week, but the very same day that Columbus set sail for China. <laughs> he set sail for China. He thought he was in India. In fact, he was in America. He had a Jewish navigator. <laughs> Columbus writes in his diaries that he can't leave the ports because of the Jews that are fleeing August the 2nd, Tisha B'Av, 1492. <sighs> One young boy who managed to escape with his family it was as a four-year-old and make it because as one set of doors closes, another set of doors opens. I'm not talking about the discovery of America. I'm talking about the fact that the Ottoman Empire opened its doors to Jews who could make it there and said they are welcome to resettle here. So one small boy who made it with his family to the Ottoman Empire, grew up in Adrianople and other places, went on to become a great scholar who took all of the great codes, all of the great halachic works, of the, and the guides of the Middle Ages, the Rif, the Rosh, the Rambam, and welded them together in the last great universally accepted synthesis of Jewish law. And that, of course, is the Shulchan Aruch. And the person I'm talking about is Yosef Karo. And that's really the cusp of this period and the next one. And Yosef Karo saw the Shulchan Aruch printed in his own lifetime. We have an enormous technological revolution that happens at the end of the 15th century in whose shadow we still exist. And that is the rise of printing and the dissemination of the printed word and text. But I'm going to give you the last 500 years extraordinarily quickly. And I'm going to do that by telling you a story. And that will enable us to understand because the details are so massive. And I think also I might be, one of the other talks I might be giving uh, during this month will be focusing just on those 500 years. You know that whenever anti-Semitic ideas come into the world, they soon become very trendy. People go, oh, that's a good anti-Semitic idea. I think we'll try that here. So there is a new idea that comes into the world round about here, which is... Let's take all the Jews of a place, let's put them in one concentrated area, let's put a big wall around them. So should we need the Jews for any particular purpose, we know where to find them. That idea, of course, is called the ghetto. And the most famous of the early ghettos is the ghetto of Venice. Venice. Who has been to the Venice ghetto? Right, so quite a few. Those of you who've been will know it's still a very, very mystical place. But in 1520, the Venice ghetto was still fairly young. I think it was only started around 1510. In the early 1520s, a very strange individual turns up at the Venice ghetto. He's about four and a half foot tall. He's like got brown wrinkly skin, very bizarre oriental clothing. He's carrying a big flag. 
He gathers the leaders of the community of Venice and he says to them, could you please get me an audience with the Pope? And they go, well, we could, but uh, who are you? He said, my name is David Haruveni and I am a representative of The lost ten tribes who have been living all this time on the other side of the mystical river Sambation that can only be crossed on Shabbat because during the week big boulders go up and down and so only on Shabbat the boulders so you can hop over. He says, and I'm here to tell you the time of redemption is at hand. And they go, whoa. And a few weeks later, Ruveni is on top of a nice white horse going into the Vatican where he has an appointment to see the Pope at the time, who is Clement VII. Clement, one of the Medici popes, actually quite favourable towards the Jewish people. Clement, likes Davide Ruveni, gives him letters of introduction to go around to visit the various communities, but courts of Europe and the Mediterranean. And Ruveni ends up in Portugal at the height of the Inquisition. Of course, they don't make the mistake of thinking that the expulsion of the Jews from Spain and Portugal was the end of the Inquisition. Really, after that, it was illegal to be a Jew on the Iberian Peninsula. But Rouveni was welcomed with diplomatic honours because he wasn't technically a Jew. He was of the tribe of Reuben. He was a member of the House of Israel. And King John of Portugal welcomes him, but he warns him not to Judaize. Now, in the court of King John was a young man called Diego Pires. Diego was born into a family of conversos, meaning that a couple of generations before, under the pressure of the Inquisition, they had converted to Christianity. Diego grew up as a good Christian boy, but he was aware of his roots. He's very taken by the charismatic Ruveni. And he goes to Ruveni one night and he says to him, and you know, Diego starts looking into his roots and wanting to get in touch with his own spiritual essence. He goes to Ruveni one night and he says to him, circumcise me. And Ruveni says, no thank you. <laughs> Two reasons. One, no thank you. And, <laughs> and secondly, do you realise how much trouble we will both be in if I do that? So Diego goes home, circumcises himself, and changes his name to Shlomo Molcho. Together, now, Molcho and Ruveni have to get out of Spain and Portugal, El Pronto, and they go on this big mystical tour for two years, right around Jewish communities in the Mediterranean. Yosef Caro writes that he remembers seeing them in Adrianople in 1527. We, this is... Doc, we have documents, we even still have Ruveni's flag, we have community accounts. For two years, Malcho starts having these multi-accelerated spiritual visions and experiences. He prophesizes a, a flood in Rome and an earthquake in Lisbon. And of course people start saying, well, maybe he's a bit special, maybe he's a bit, maybe it's Ruveni, maybe it's Malcho. And Ruveni and Malcho also think maybe, maybe it's you, maybe it's me, maybe it's both of them, maybe a bit special. So Malcho says, well, I have to go where every good Jewish boy needs to go if he thinks he might be a bit special. And I don't mean law school, I mean, I have, where, does every, where does every good Jewish boy need to go if he thinks he might be the Messiah? Who does he have to go and see? The Pope. The Pope, of course, is the last convert to Judaism. 
Ruveni says, well, I've done that shtick. You can do that. So Molcho goes. He goes and sees Clement really likes Molcho. And he gives him letters of introduction. Molcho goes, you know, we've got a plan. We've got a plan. Let's get the, all of the Christian armies of Europe together with the armies of the ten tribes of Israel that are living on the other side of the mystical river somewhere that can only be crossed on Shabbat. Let's get them all together and let's have one last great big crusade. And let's get rid of the Muslims out of the Holy Land and establish a Jewish state backed by Western Christianity. Because you know, Clement, that there has to be an independent sovereign Jewish state in the land of Israel backed by Western Christianity before the Messiah can come. This is in the 16th century. And Clement goes, cool. However, I'm only the Pope. I don't have an army. You have to go back to the Christian kings of Europe. I'll give you letters. I'll back you. And you have to get their support. So they go back to Portugal. John says to them, well, if Clement's in, I'm in. But I don't really call the shots around here anymore. You have to go and speak to Charles V, the don of the Habsburg Empire. Charles V, the grandson of Ferdinand and Isabella. Charles V, who, who's just presided over the Diet at Worms that excommunicated Luther. Charles V, whose uncle, Henry VIII, has just taken an entire country, England, out of the church. Charles V, who is in no mood for these two, Archiparchim, and he takes Molcho and he burns him. And he sends Ruveni back to Spain in chains. This story has a tragic ending, but it is an amazing story because it is the first time since Beitar that we come to a realization that the Jewish people can, in fact, achieve and acquire their own place in the world, that they have a meaning in the world that is ultimately meant to lead towards redemption. We do not just survive from generation to generation to hand over the recipe for gefilte fish. There is a meaning in the world behind the Jewish people, and that meaning is deeply connected with the redemption of the world itself. It is those events that then lead us to understand, obviously, the big story of the, the 17th century in terms of Jewish history is the events of Shabtai Tzvi, but also some of the great massacres in the 17th century that were aligned precisely with prophecies of redemption. The 17th century is so packed, I can't really touch on it. The 18th century is really the origins of the Jewish world of today. All of the great movements and currents that we see in the Jewish world today have their genesis in the 18th century, as these movements and the Jewish world generally is reacting to the huge changes of the Enlightenment. Obviously, the rise of Hasidism, the rise of the Haskalah, the reform movements, and of course, the great story of the 19th. And you, those of you who are familiar will know just how absurdly I'm not even barely touching on the issues here, but just really to frame it. The story of the 19th century, of course, is the story of emancipation. A lot of people don't realize that the idea that Jews have equal rights with other human beings in a given society is no older than about 100, 150 years in most countries in the world. And then the 20th century, and we have two events in the 20th century, the Shoah and the Hakamata Medina, the establishment of the State of Israel, are events that would be huge if they appeared anywhere on this timeline and they happen within three years of each other. I realize that uh, we've gone a little over time I, and we've had to rush the last 500 years, but we can fill that in over the next month. <laughs> 
it's important to realize that really ultimately more than just studying history, Jews live history and are history and become history. Every single generation of the Jewish people is a link from Sinai to transmit meaning in the world. And the meaning that we are transmitting into the world is that ultimately we want to bring the world to a state of peace. Peace is a divine name. Peace is the altar and the revelation of the oneness of God in the world is the task of the Jewish people. And the more you think about it, you will realize that all of the great struggles and conflicts in the world cannot be resolved unless they are resolved through the Jewish people who have been at the center of these great currents of historical movement through time. More on that we could talk about later. You have uh, been... <laughs> Rather than finish on something deeply mystical that will confuse all of us, including myself, I will uh, tell you that you've been a great audience. Uh, I am going to hand you over to Ari, who has some important announcements to make, and I will obviously mill around afterwards if there are any questions. Please bear in mind that tonight at about 2 or 3 in the morning, I'm going to be bashing my head against the wall when I remember things I didn't say. But I am in Orange County for the next month, and we'll be able to go into detail on a great many things, not just in history, but the ongoing currents of Jewish philosophy as well, uh, and Jewish mysticism and the things that, that interest us. Before you get up, Ari, just one more point. This is uber important. <laughs> I have talked about a lot of men. You need to realize that women are really the engine of Jewish history. Women have been leaders and warriors and prophets and scholars at every juncture of Jewish history. This narrative seems male-centric, and I'm not saying this because I'm some sensitive New Age guy, I'm telling you because it really is the case in Jewish history that the undercurrent and the junctures are women. I'm giving quite a few talks over the next month on the impact of Jewish women in history, and I think it's important for us to realize that that then needs to become integrated with the wider perspective that we looked at. But the narrative does tend at this stage in terms of the spiritual epochs we've talked about. And remember, we only have to remember Bayit Mishon, First and Second Temple, the Talmudic, the Gaonic, the Rishonim, the Acharonim, and the details, once we know them, fit into the general spiritual project and of each generation. I hope that framework is useful for us, and I thank you for listening. <laughs>